eating disorders don't just happen alone, they happen with other diagnoses as well as big questions of self-esteem, self-worth, who am I in this world, am I safe to be in this world? These bigger questions are actually what's often underneath what's going on. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, the DSM-5, also known as the Psychiatrist's Bible, there are only four official diagnoses for eating disorders. Lots of experts expect that to double in the next edition, but the reasons that someone might develop or maintain an eating disorder are as variable as the number of people who are affected. They're not just a set of behaviours, they're a way of coping with difficult things. So to treat and care for someone who's affected, we need to understand their underlying psychological and social reality, not just their symptoms, because those symptoms won't go away without understanding and addressing what's underneath. With all of that in mind, treatment can be as nuanced as those seeking care. And today's guest should know, she's Juliet Thompson, who ably managed the Butterfly National Helpline for many years. I am a psychologist who has been working in um, the area of eating disorders for over 12 years now. Uh, and I, in my private practice, I mainly see people who are struggling with body image and eating disorders. I also um, am a women's empowerment coach as well. So I think that also influences my perspective and what uh, who I am really in my work. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you know about when you're talking about eating disorders? Yes. So I guess the the context that I see is when people come to treatment, they can really be very unsure about what uh, their eating disorder um, is all about and how it's going to be treated uh, in in a clinical setting. And I guess the biggest thing that strikes me and that I'd love for people to understand is that an eating disorder is the, often the tip of an iceberg and the eating disorder behaviours and thoughts are that tip that's pointing out of the ocean or the, the water. And underneath, there is a whole lot more going on likely for that person about uh, them in their lives. And we do in treatment have to look at the the behaviours and um target those but actually what we end up talking about so often is all the other stuff about life about them in life etc something that's come up a lot through the course of the last you know three or four years that we've been doing this podcast is that eating disorders hardly ever exist on their own and so there's always co-occurring mental conditions or disorders i suppose it's very seldom that somebody is only suffering of an eating disorder is that is that your experience that's right. I mean, once again, we can look at it as comorbidities, absolutely, and other ways that uh, that inner world is presenting. But underneath all diagnoses, uh, there there are deeper questions about what's going on with that person. And often diagnoses are the expression. And I'm not talking about 100% of the time here. I'm talking broadly. So yes, they, eating disorders don't just happen alone. They happen with other diagnoses as well as big questions of self-esteem, self-worth. Who am I in this world? Am I safe to be in this world? These bigger questions are actually what's often underneath what's going on. And this is why psychologists are so important in this treatment. We talk about seeing dietitians, and we talk about seeing um, your GP and keeping all of these other people in the loop. How, how big a role is that of the psychologist? With eating disorders, we need to be often a part of a team 
It depends on the individual presentation of the person. And this is something I really want to share as well. This idea of we have to meet and treat the person as they individually are. So often people will need with a significant eating disorder, they will need a treatment team. And a psychologist is a part of that team. Um, but that team approach is really important. There is sometimes where eating disorders show up um, where maybe a team approach isn't necessary or isn't possible for that person, and that's actually okay too within boundaries. Uh, so, yeah, team approach can be really important, and a psychologist is an important part of that team to do that uncovering work and that targeting work around behaviours and change and getting to the bottom of what's really going on. Uh, but I, w- I also want to make the point that uh, if if you don't don't want to access other people uh, or your eating disorder is not uh, in a, a very critical or intense phase, then it's not always 100% necessary. So what happens though, like in terms of when, when you do start working with someone with an eating disorder, how does that treatment usually work? And I, and I guess that's a simplistic kind of a question because you just said that every person's different, right? But like, <laughs> it's great. Yes, general said. Like, is, are there some basic guidelines you can give us about how it works? Absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, the first thing to understand is that not only are uh, treatment styles different, you could there is actually a few different ways of treating an eating disorder. Every therapist is going to be different as well. Okay, so you've got those two things to start with. And we want to, as therapists, look um, at a client as a whole person and work out pretty quickly what therapy style is going to suit that person's needs the best um, and what's going to fit in that therapeutic relationship. So what I'm talking about is sometimes a therapist might say, okay, CBTE approach is going to fit this situation nicely because of A, B, and C. And sometimes that's really inappropriate. A client may have gone through CBTE a couple times or, and had a good or bad experience, but it's no longer appropriate. And you might want to move to a different model depending on the eating disorder presentation. I'm going to jump in and explain a couple of these terms as Juliet talks about them. CBTE is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Eating Disorders. It focuses on identifying and challenging negative emotions, thought patterns and behaviours and developing healthier coping strategies so that an individual can create a more positive relationship with food and with themselves. For instance, um, specialist supportive clinical management is another great uh, intervention. Unlike CBTE, specialist supportive clinical management involves a person with an eating disorder working closely with a trained professional. The therapist can help them set achievable goals while also providing emotional understanding and guidance for managing those symptoms. So it really varies about what intervention you're going to be using. And once you've isolated that intervention, uh, you then you know, need to, to follow the framework of, of that intervention. But it can look quite different depending on what model you use. When you talk about the whole of person or a holistic approach, what do you mean in terms of eating disorders? A, a part of that can be back to what you were talking about earlier with the team approach, having uh, dietetics and uh, medication is a part of understanding the whole person. The way that I view a holistic approach in my work is this idea of, okay, this person in the, in, is showing up in the world. It's not just the eating disorder. What is going on for them 
in the way that they live their entire lives and what's not working in that and how can we understand the eating disorder within the context of the person as a whole. So sometimes people will say to me, um, oh, well, you know, I know we're here to talk about the eating disorder in the, in the early stages, but blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, oh, no, actually, we need to be talking about everything. If this other thing is important to you, 100%, it relates back to the eating disorder, right? So in, in talking yeah. about someone's whole life is important. When we also talk about person-centered treatment, can that, can that exist within a holistic kind of a, approach? Absolutely. I think it is very important to take a holistic, a, a person-centered approach because what you're, what you're saying, when you say person-centered and holistic, the opposite to that is a manualized approach that takes no deviation or no account about the person sitting in front of you. And it, and it does that therapy to the person in, without regards to, to, to anything that they um, might be presenting that's deviating from what's in the manual. Okay, so yeah. that that is the opposite to a holistic person-centered approach because you're not looking at the person in front of you and amending the model to suit that person and uh, you're not looking at other parts of their lives necessarily if the model doesn't account for it. So we love models. We love evidence-based. That's so important for the treatment of eating disorders. We absolutely have to start there. Uh, but to to really work with somebody in a in a powerful, meaningful and long-lasting way, we really do need to add in the person-centered approach and the holistic approach in my opinion. Everybody's come on a different journey to end up where they are. So and and this is something that I think we should probably think about in all areas of life. Like, you know, you've always got to remember that people have gone a completely different way, which is something I like to say to people, my friends in the fitness industry as well. They're like, come on, I did it. You can do that. This guy did it. It's fine. Well, th that's great for them. That obviously worked for them. But there are a whole swath of people who, for whom that won't work. What areas of personal development is it that you would target when you're yeah. dealing with a patient with an eating disorder? Critical areas that I find show up for many people, not all people, are things like self-worth. And whether that sense of worth is internally derived or externally derived, things like boundaries, and this actually is linked to self-worth, but how easily can a person or how hard is it for a person to put boundaries in? How do they understand boundaries? This idea of people-pleasing, self-confidence generally, embodiment is another huge development area for someone often with an eating disorder. And what I mean by embodiment is showing up in your body in a safe way, not in a disconnected, fearful way. So these are some of the areas that I find are absolutely fundamental to look at when treating an eating disorder. Because if you if you treat the if you target and treat surface behaviors and thoughts only and leave it there, then these, these concepts will be, continue to be stuck and unhelpful and they'll continue to influence the person that, in a way that makes it more likely for them to relapse or meet needs in another different unhealthy, um, unhelpful way. So unless we get to, the, to, to these core concepts or, and sometimes it's other core concepts, 
um, it's a it's not a great um, chance in in really making sure recovery can can stick. And I just want to make the point that it is okay for a person to just want to go in and target behaviors and thoughts if that's where they're at and they don't want to do this work. That's fine. There's a lot of value in that. But in my experience, uh, I, I really do explain to clients that this stuff is important to make it last. I really love this whole area of uh, that we're talking about with these p- particular areas of personal development. I think a lot of people are going to relate to these kind of things. Tell us why these might result in the behaviors that would lead someone to an eating disorder. Absolutely. So if you feel that you are not worthy, and that's a really interesting concept to unpack in therapy, and it takes a, it takes a while because it's a gnarly one, but I, mean, I think most people understand this broad sense of, of, of worth, at, at least when we first talk about it. If you feel that you are um, not good enough and you need to work or attain or strive to be enough, then an eating disorder can come in and say to somebody, oh, I'll help you achieve that. I'll help you achieve to be enough in the ways of um, physical appearance, in the way that society may have historically supported, but also a sense of maybe control and achievement, right? You might define yourself as enough and worthy if you're someone who's – uh, you know, self-disciplined and that's the sense that some people have and when they first come to treatment. They say, I feel like I've achieved something when I use my eating disorder and that's making me feel worthy. Wow. Makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Is it related to shame? Because we know shame is another driving emotion for eating disorders. It is fundamentally linked to shame. Shame is one of the most powerful core emotions that humans can have and the reasons why people carry shame can be very different, but shame is absolutely linked to self-concept and uh, the the idea of the right to show up as you are completely without having to amend yourself or um, be in regret or uh, feel that there is a part of you that is not okay and that you need to hide. Right? These are all really, really core concepts. So when we talk about the relationship between the issues that we're just talking about and the higher incidence of eating disorders among women, and we know that we're certainly not saying that there's not a lot of men who do get eating disorders, but it is generally seen as something that is, and, and the results show that there's more women who are affected. Um, and that could be because men simply don't want to ask for help. You know, a lot of reasons. If from your point of view, as someone who works with women and helping women to understand a little bit more about themselves, why do you think that is? I think you're absolutely right. There's a whole lot more men out there who are experiencing eating disorders that may look a little bit different to the way that it presents for women, perhaps. And that's a part of the reason why it's being undetected. But it's also socially not as accepted, I think, generally for a man to uh, identify and come forward with this idea of I have an eating disorder. So there's a lot of complexity there. That's the first thing I want to say. But yes, even when we take account for uh, the underreporting and um, our poor understanding of eating disorders in men, even when we take into account for that, my feeling is that uh, women, particularly for the um, anorexia and bulimia categories, 
are uh, more represented in those behaviours um, and that experience than men. And I can't give you the research on this in terms of the history and uh, sociocultural impacts because I haven't done it. But my feeling at, as someone passionate in this space is that we like to uh, forget about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this moment where it has been explicitly said that women are property, that women are not equal to men in any way. And we could talk for hours about the history of women. This is all factual. You know, there's nothing outrageous here. But in our modern era, particularly in um, perhaps, you know, uh, where we're from in Australia, we we forget that this history is behind us and continues to impact our psyche on a really deep level. When we look back at history with an understanding of women as property, often dependent on the goodwill of a man, do you think that these circumstances might have led to more of what you've been talking about before, including body image issues and eating concerns? I think that we'll never, ever know because women's experience, everyday women's experience, weren't recorded, particularly about how they felt about their bodies and food. So I, I want to answer that in a little bit of a sitting on the fence way, but I, I feel that, yes, it is absolutely possible that there was a whole lot more body image and eating issues that we will never scratch the surface of because it simply was never recorded in any way. The second part, though, is that I think that what we're seeing today is a culmination of our history as women, a culmination of those ideas and the revolutions that we've had as well. But when we look at social media, when we look at the way that uh, capitalist modern um, society works, it is based off this idea that you are not enough and if you buy this product, you will be enough and you need to look as uh, as attractive as possible because that is very important in this society and that hasn't happened in a vacuum. That has had hundreds of years behind it influencing it. So I think it's possible that genuinely we have more eating disorders now because of that culmination of factors. That makes a lot of sense. What we talk a lot about is finding recovery. Tell me about recovery. It's not an easy path. It's not something that is just a straight road down the garden that you could map, really, is it? This is something that's far more complicated. Why is it such a big deal? Look, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but I often say to my clients that recovery is probably, not always, but probably going to be the hardest thing you ever do in your life, but it will be the most rewarding and it will be the most worthwhile thing that you have ever done because it takes your life to a whole new level. So I think that sets the the groundwork for the answer that, yes, it is enormously complex recovery. You can do recovery as far as you want as an individual. And recovery is a very personal concept. One person's recovery is not another person's recovery. Sure, we can look at the DSM and say, well, what what's the criteria for an eating disorder and does this person meet that criteria? And through treatment, we hope that at least that person will no longer meet those criteria. But there is a whole lot more to recovery than that criteria. Someone can be still actually struggling with an eating disorder and disordered eating and not meet that recovery. 
but it is complex exactly because of what I have been chattering on about this whole interview. And that is because we're looking at a whole person and their whole life. It is not just about resolving these target behaviors, right? Or symptoms. It's, it's saying, who do you think you are as a person and how do you want to show up in the world? And that takes time because by the time someone gets to the therapist's room, they've had, um, if they're an adult, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, let's call it uh, programming or way of, ways of living that have built and compounded. And that takes time to unravel that. If you think about uh, an archaeological dig and, and the strata, the layers, right? That's how I like to look at a person. There's many layers. There's a lot of things going on. And that takes time to unravel. And because it is quite intensive and exhausting, uh, there, there needs to be um, space for that. A person may want to have more intense therapy, then back off for a little while and then come back and have more more intense therapy. I mean, each person's journey looks different, but it is potentially a, a, a big process. If someone can't access direct support for someone like you, what kind of advice would you have for somebody who really needs it? One thing that's really important for people to know is that you do not have to be 100% certain that you want recovery and that you can do recovery before you reach out to a therapist. A therapist can should be able to support you where you are at. So I really encourage people, if they're thinking about therapy, first of all, to to jump in wherever they're at and go to the therapist, the therapist and say, you know, a part of me doesn't want to recover at all. And a part of me does, right? So that's the first bit of advice I want to give. The second is that there are some great resources out there, books, online resources that can get you started on this process. One that I think that is really accessible in so many different ways is Carolyn Coston's Eight Keys to Recovery. It is a nice starting place. It's definitely not going to be probably the book that um, solves everything for you and, and you, know, you can say I've recovered afterwards, but it can be a nice way to start thinking about some of these concepts that we've been talking about. Uh, and there are some great resources that you can access, I'm sure, through uh, the big organizations like the Butterfly Foundation to get that ball rolling. And we'll put a lot of these links in show notes. Don't feel like you need to be taking notes while you're listening to this podcast. But Carolyn Coston was one of the first people we interviewed for this uh, this this project, and um, that's an amazing book. So Juliet Thompson, thank you so much for your time. How can people find you, and and where can they maybe you know hear about some of your work? Great. So I have a clinical website, so that's juliettthompson.com, and that's where I do my clinical psychology work. As I said, I'm also a women's empowerment coach, and I have a podcast myself called The Sisterhood Downloads with, with a wonderful um, friend and psychotherapist, Jacqueline Burns. So uh, if people go to their podcast provider and type in The Sisterhood Downloads, you'll find it. We spend a lot of time talking about these big picture concepts, particularly as it relates to women or people who identify as women. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you, Juliet. appreciate it. We'll make sure we have all of those links available to everyone, but thanks for your time. Lovely to talk to you. That's holistic recovery expert, Juliet Thompson. And if you think that you or someone that you know could benefit from being in touch with someone like Juliet, Butterfly has a referral database on their website. It's a directory of professionals screened for an understanding of eating disorders so that people Australia-wide can get help 
recovering or caring for someone with an eating disorder by finding the professionals that they need. If you need help or support right now, there's the Butterfly Helpline on 1-800-334673. That's 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's the number to call for free and confidential support from 8am until midnight, seven days a week. I'd also urge you to look up Wanda Nerida, which is a safe, nurturing, healing space for eating disorder recovery. It's currently Australia's only specialist residential eating disorder recovery centre, which uses a model of care based on Carolyn Coston's book, The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, which Juliet spoke about during our interview. To find out more, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Butterfly Let's Talk in Depth is produced by Icon Media in partnership with Butterfly Foundation with the support of Waratah Education Foundation. I'm Sam Icon, your host, producer and editor. Our executive producer is Camilla Beckett. And as always, if you want to support this show, please just drop us a message or a rating in the app that you're using right now to listen to this podcast. I'm Sam Iken. Thank you so much for your company. Listener.